0: enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I'm telling you, this intro has been so crazy. Hey, Welcome to Carol the Coach. This is Sex Health with Carol the Coach and we specifically work with sex addiction and partner betrayal. I got Tell you, today I'm really excited because we got Clint Davis on, and he is a counselor, um, he's a father, and he just wrote a book that called Building Better Bridges, a guidebook to having difficult conversations that can save our children. So we're going to be talking about this because I know I have some very definite feelings about all this, and I think he does too. Um, I know he does, said he, it was his mission to help parents with sexuality and their kids and, and not just sexuality, but social media, uh, body safety. So he's going to come on in just a few minutes to talk about that. In the meantime, there is no doubt that um, there is help for you every which way. Now, you all know I am leaning into retirement. So I am really working harder on running groups, doing a Help Them Heal course. Uh, yeah, I've got this online course, Help Them Heal. And you can just Google Carol the Coaching, Help Them Heal online course and learn how to do this work together as a couple. As a matter of fact, so many people have said, Carol, won't you work with us um, as a couple? And I'm really trying to maximize what I do. So I have this Helping You Heal the Irkham Way Uh, on October 13th. It's a Friday from 10 Eastern to 5 p.m. And I'm going to be taking about 10 couples. And we're going to be talking about how do you do... Helping them heal. How do you do Urkham? What are the three phases of Urkham? You know, we talk about safety and stabilization as the first phase, but then that second phase is getting that anchor out, that grief, that mourning, um, that that partners feel, that addicts can be a part of. When I ask a partner to write um, her. Her sad and angry feelings to the addiction, invariably, the addict will say, if you're going to have the partner do that, can I do that too? Because I know that my addiction destroyed lives and I want to write to the addiction. And, you know, when I think back to my training with Patrick Carnes, he had a whole manual for men that came into his rehab center where he would actually have them write every day to their addiction. And and he would have addiction entries that were meant to educate the addict. I mean, the addiction entry might have been something like, come on, you know, you just want to look at a little porn right now. And really, what's it going to hurt? If nobody knows, it is not going to hurt. And then it was up to you, the addict, to write back and say, you know what, that was my stinking thinking. That was you calling the shots. I don't want that in my life anymore. I want to have a healthy, authentic, transparent relationship with my wife, so stay out of my life. And when you can have that kind of dialogue, you learn so much about yourself. So, again, helping you heal the Irkham way, October 13th, 10 o'clock Eastern to 5, um, I am going to be running the course. I'm going to be talking to you about healing and restoration as you walk through this roadmap for how sure. to heal your relationship. And so I just really want you to pay a lot of attention to what you need as you are working on Well, as you're working on this with somebody who's an expert, who's an expert in the field that knows how to do this, right? So please, I want you to come come to the workshop. Uh, There is an early bird special if you register by the end of next week, and uh, I would love to see you. not often that you get to work with Carol the coach, so come join me, and I would love that. Now, today, we are we are going to be talking to Clint Davis. I mean, this guy has written this amazing book, and it is all about how to talk to kids about all sorts of things, and if you're reading what he's going to be talking about, you will see that my platform, Blog Talks, doesn't let us put the word pornography. So it says ornography. Um, It tries to keep things clean, and I have to appreciate that. Um, So anyway, we're so happy to have you, Clint. I mean, what an amazing book you have written.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah. So so tell me, where did you get the idea and how long did it take you? Because I know you're a dad.
1: Yeah, so um, over the last four or five years, you know, I'm a CSAT, and like you are, and I know we, we've talked before, and I'm glad to be back. Um, and you had some of the the trainings and also just follow some of your stuff through the listserv and love what you do. Thank you. And so for the last, you know, I think almost 10, 10 years, eight years, I've been working with CSAT communities, sex addiction, trauma. And what kept coming up in so many of the conversations was, you know, childhood neglect and childhood sexual abuse. And <clears throat> myself, I, I experienced some sexual trauma when I was around 11 or 12 into puberty, and just being a man in the culture, being exposed to pornography or um, things of that nature as we as we grew up, and how that affected my life and the life of the people around me. <laughs> Excuse me, that was that was very common, mm-hmm. but. One of the things as I got trained in trauma and learned about the ACEs study, adverse childhood experiences, um, one of the things that was not listed was what I what I call childhood sexual neglect. So there's emotional, physical, and sexual abuse, and there's emotional and physical neglect, but there's really not a a word or an idea around sexual neglect. And when we hear that in adulthood or in that world, right, we hear like a, a person's not getting enough sex. Like my wife or my husband sexually neglecting they're not giving me enough sex. But what I'm talking about is the education piece, the the lack of conversations about consent, body safety, proper terms for private parts, and just sexual development in general. And what I found through research and through therapy and <clears throat> we have five practices, five offices and about thirty therapists and so you know, you kind of hear these things over and over again. And what I found is that a large majority of people, eight or nine out of 10 people, were never talked to about, you know, typical normal sexual developmental stages and things. And, excuse me, in my opinion, that's very neglectful. You know, um, and in the book, I describe it as, you know, walking your child, uh, teaching your child how to cross the street. You know, you you say, hold my hand, look both ways, watch out for cars, stay on the sidewalk, so you don't get hit, right? So you stay safe. But when it comes to educating children on their bodies and other people's bodies and the internet and social media, it's like we're allowing kids to walk out into the street at, you know, 18 months and they just get smashed by a car that they didn't even know existed. And so the book was Over the last couple of years, I've been doing a lot of talks on these subjects, written, you know, several talks. Got to do a TED Talk in January, so I would love for people, you know, to go listen to that. It's Clint Davis' uh, TED Talk. It's called, um, let's see, The Sex Talks We we Never Had That Can Save Our Children.
0: Oh, that sounds great.
1: Out of that TED Talk, I just got a lot of great feedback and and people emailing me and messaging me going, oh, my gosh, that's my childhood. How, How did you know that? Like, I've never talked about this. And so one of the frustrating parts was every time, you know, over these two or 300 talks that I'm given at schools or churches or organizations or or synagogues or whatever, um, I don't have anything to give anybody, right? I'm like, well, go listen to this podcast. Go, you know, go listen to, you know, you or go listen to somebody else who's awesome and hear information. But there wasn't anything I could put in their hands. And so that started the process of, as a dad, you know, I have a five-and-a-half and and an eight-and-a-half-year-old. So I'm like, what do I need? What do I? What am I using? And I know that parents don't have time to go listen to 40 podcasts and read 20 books. And if they did, they still don't know what's good material and what's accurate and what's appropriate. And so I spent the last several years just combing through the research, combing through the books, using my own expertise and my own, you know, parenting, honestly, um, and just creating a very simple chapter-by-chapter guide on why, first of all, should we talk to our kids about these things, how to do so, and where are we going in the future if we, if we don't?
0: Well, that makes a lot of sense. And actually, you know, I got some questions for you for sure. Um, for instance, do you believe, and I, and I know that not necessarily would this be for everybody, but do you think that there's a special age that you should begin to talk to kids about sexual things. I'm not talking body safety because I believe that needs to happen before they're even preschool age. Um, and we'd love to hear what you think. But more importantly, just talking about sex. When do you think parents should have that conversation and, and how should they do it?
1: Well, you know, the idea of building a bridge or building better bridges is this concept that, that I came up with about these conversations that we have should build a bridge between you and your child that can hold heavy things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so a, lo- a lot of us grew up, you know, having the birds and the bees talk around 15 or 14. Mm-hmm. And we've already developed, we've already probably had our first, uh, you know, menstrual cycle. We've already had our first sexual and developmental experience. Um, certainly we've had an erection or, you know, some biological marker. And the problem is is that we didn't know why we were having those things. And so my belief is that obviously you shouldn't talk um, with your three-year-old about masturbation, but you could talk to your three-year-old about why their body's changing and why this, you know, this certain body part changes in this way. And that's just a simple conversation. So I think you should start early in an age appropriate way and then build along the way, as their body is telling you that it's changing or they're having different experiences, I think you should always be um, a few months to six months ahead of that developmental stage in the conversation. So, for example, if you want to have the sex talk, like how babies are made, where they come from, you may start that at a young age of, oh, babies grow in mommy's belly. Well, what else happens? Well, we'll tell you that when you get a little bit older and you're ready to hear it. But you, you don't wait until 14 to have the full-blown talk with nothing in between there because that's where I think things get really messed um, up is that the child then doesn't have any trust in the parent along the way. So there's no bridge built. There's no equity built of like, oh, mom handles this appropriately. Your dad talks about this. And, and I can trust their feedback, and I can trust that they're going to do it calmly, and they're not going to embarrass me, and they're, they're going to give me good information and not too much information. So I would say um, look to your child's development. That means you have to be educated on their development. You have to know a little bit about puberty and know a little bit about what your child's going to go through so that you can have a robust understanding of, okay, here's the next stage. It's coming up. We're about to hit this. So I need to do this. You know, and the reality is we, we do this with everything else. We do this with language. We do this with um, writing. We do this with math. We do this with emotions. We we teach them the ABCs from the very beginning of them being able to make noise. You know, we point it out to them, and we, we say, oh, this is an A. Can you say A? Can you say Dada? Can you say Mama? Can you Can you do these things? And then all of a sudden, by the time they're, in the developmental stage, all of a sudden they're saying the ABCs and we are like, my kid's a genius. Uh-huh. You know, how would they figure this out? And it's like, well, they didn't just figure it out. They, you've been building that in them over the course of some time.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And so I feel like it should be the same way with sexual development.
0: Well, I do too. And yet what's interesting is that we're being pushed to do it earlier in part because of the amount of pornography hours the kids are <clears throat> witnessing, you know, yes. to the tune of 8, nine, ten, or 11. I mean, you know, you know, with us, as CSATs, we were told by the time a young boy is 11, he will have seen 20 hours of pornography because his friends will be sending him these things. And with curious minds, it also means they do some exploring themselves. They put in the words, the inappropriate, not inappropriate, but the boobs, you know, in the search engine and yeah. end up with horrendous um, information and images. So yeah. I know you said age appropriate, and you're talking to a, a woman who was taught about sex the proper way by the time she was so mm-hmm. I knew the general description of everything that was happening. I might not have understood it exactly, but I knew. And I really believe it kind of helped build the person that I am today, to have that kind of confidence and to be that kind of an educator with my own friends. Mm-hmm. However, we know parents should be the educators. So what would you say for boys um, in terms of parents that have young boys, when do you talk to them about pornography?
1: Um, well, <clears throat> what I've seen is there's there's a really good book called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures. Got there's it. A junior, there's a junior and there's a senior. There's a And my boys already know the word pornography. Okay. And they know it's related to, and they're five, five and a half and eight and a half, and they know it's related to someone taking pictures of their private parts or someone else's private parts and not being shown to them without their permission. hmm so that's as simple as they need to understand what pornography is, you know, up until around nine or ten. But whenever you're going to, whenever they're going to start to have devices, mm-hmm. whenever they're going to, whenever you hand them an iPad or when you hand them an iPhone, then without it, I think it's 87 percent of parents have no rules for devices. If a parent has no rules for devices and they hand their child a phone or an iPad, it's not if the child is looking for pornography, that the pornography is looking for them. These algorithms and these apps oh, no and kidding. these commercials, even in the commercials and the ads on games that are children's games, mm-hmm. have hyper-sexualized cartoons and, and pornography and viruses that get in there. And you're, you're, So it's, it's not if, it's when. Mm-hmm. And so that can start that unhealthy, like we know, or Basil temple, template towards um, a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old who's kind of pre-puberty, they're excited, they've never seen anything, but all of a sudden they see something that's highly sexual on a screen, and now they're searching and they're looking. And like you said, at 11, they've seen 20 hours of pornography, but what people don't realize is that in order to find, like, you know, soft core pornography or just nudity is very difficult on the Internet now. The porn that was around 10 years ago, 20 years ago... 87% 87% and 92% of all pornography is graphic violence. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that, it's, I think parents are still hung up on thinking, oh, well, Clint's a prude and, you know, the, or, these people are prudes and they don't want my kids to see boobs. They're going to see naked people. Nudity's not bad. And it's like in art, at an art gallery, a nude painting is not going to corrupt your child. But what is going to corrupt your child is the graphic violence and sex and abuse that's happening in pornography, which is what is getting pushed and what people
0: are seeing online. You make a good so, point. We we kind of say it's not your father's pornography anymore. You know right. because it isn't. It's about choking, it's about gagging, it's about hurting, it's about gang rape, it's about asphyxiation. It's just about a lot of things that we as adults unless we're looking at pornography would have no idea is really out there. You know, I write love the fact that I have no algorithms I mean there's nobody that sends me anything at all because I've never looked at that and yet the minute I did even for 30 seconds it would set me up for getting that stuff sent to me and that's what happens to kids they're curious they their minds don't understand we don't even understand and so their minds don't understand and they, they want to understand. It's just a natural drive inside of them. They want to see more and they want to understand. And at 8, 9, 10, 11, 15, maybe even 22, it's not all put together yet for them, especially if parents haven't had those talks.
1: Right. And I, and I think when you're, when you're merging that, one of the chapters in the book is called The Two-Headed Monster, Masturbation and Porn. Mm-hmm. And the reason I, I say in the first beginning of the chapter, if I wrote this book 10 years ago, maybe I would just talk about porn or maybe I would just talk about masturbation. But it's very difficult today in 2023 to talk about them separately because, you know, to mind the phrase, like, they go hand in hand. You know, m- most children, most adults who are watching pornography are masturbating most of the time with that. And so if you if you assume that 92% of pornography is graphic violence with those things you described, and a child is masturbating to that and being aroused by that, then their original foundational wiring for sexuality is extremely wired inappropriately, and they are masturbating to violence, essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, what we're seeing, right, and you know this as well as I do, what we're seeing in the teens and the young adults is this affecting their relationships because their sex education is pornography, and they're chasing arousal they're chasing highest orgasm, they're chasing highest pleasure at the cost of the person that they're having sex with.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so we're getting these teenagers coming in saying, well, I broke up my boyfriend or I broke up my girlfriend because they wanted me to do X, Y, Z, and I wouldn't do it. Or they were doing these things to me and I didn't like it. Um, and so what that's creating in this, in this teen culture and this young adult culture is such toxic relationships around sexuality. And so if we don't do something about that, if we don't do the prevention and the recovery that we need to do, we're in for a world of hurt in the next 10 years.
0: Well, I so respect the work of Noah Church because obviously as he was in his early 20s all the way up to 30, he would go to college campuses because what we also know is that teenagers – who have looked at pornography for five or six years, it's so much easier to pleasure yourself and not have to deal with a relationship. And therefore, if they get into a relationship, there's absolutely no desire to even experiment with kissing and sexuality at all, and and they can't become erect. So I'm worried about our population, Glenn. I mean...
1: A hundred percent, Doctor Carroll. Like that—that that is, I thought. I think they said recently that the number one buyer buyer of Viagra is 18 to 24 year old males.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't you know, know the,
1: that. Yes, the erect—you know—the erectile dysfunction is, is an extreme increase in the last 10 years because these children have been watching pornography and they've been having, you know, lots of sexual situations and they—they've been so overstimulated. That they have a diff- difficult conversation or situ you know situation with getting aroused in just normal sexual experiences with, with a female. So it's either either they cannot get off and they cannot get an erection, or they get off way too quickly because they're just constantly so aroused another time. And so they're you know those are important parts of having sex. It's not like you need to have porn star sex for 45 minutes, but you need to be able to have you know, a relationship with your spouse and be able to have sex with them and pleasure them. And, and all of those things um, work together for healthy intimacy and connection. And this population of people, because of pornography and because of masturbation addiction, they're not having those relationships. And those relationships are suffering. And if we don't, again, do the work of prevention in our 10 and under crowd and do the work of recovery in our 10 and up crowd,
0: we're in for a world of hurt for our population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so, you know, you this book of yours really addresses so many different issues. And uh, what's your take on masturbation? And I say this, so, I say this, have yeah. been told be pornography neutral and masturbation neutral. And what I have found in my own personal career is that it's impossible to masturbate without looking at, no, without remembering and having fantasy about pornography. And if if I'm working with a sex addict, I don't believe that a sex addict can masturbate if he's, wanting recovery or in new recovery. I think that takes a long time to dim down that reward center in the brain and then be able to do that. That being said, you know, I definitely think children should be able to explore their body. And I, I really have always promoted that may make sexuality, um, I don't want to say less appealing, but they won't go to each other, but they'll just get to know their body. And there's nothing wrong with that.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah, you're 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 hitting on a topic that's all in the book. that, that is, is what I tried to really, you know, what I tried to do with the book is uh, is give a very um, intricate weaving of all these things, so that through each chapter you see how this connects to this connects to this, and that's what I think we've missed is we've siloed up these conversations instead of going well we live in a let's let's look at the world we live in today and now let's address this issue. So I think that's a great conversation and question. My my thought process is, well, we can look at the statistics and we can look at the average child and we can say, okay, so one in three girls and one in five boys have experienced sexual abuse.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, we know that. That means that kids and that's reported.
0: reported. That's reported. That's I even exactly think
1: higher. Uh-huh. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. So and that's abuse. Now, what about touching or inappropriate uh, oral sex or inappropriate uh, masturbation with a child who is unsupervised, who is around puberty or below, right? These things happen. this is what sexual, in my opinion, this is what childhood sexual neglect is, is a parent never teaching their child about their bodies or safety, but letting them go to a sleepover with children who have been exposed, exposed to porn or children who have been abused. What happens is is that then they play that out with each other in private, and now they are added to the statistic. Mm -hmm. So we know that the abuse is happening, and it's underreported, but if we add the statistic of maybe what we wouldn't call abuse, but exposure
0: Mm -hmm. or um, – Maybe even coercion, exposure, coercion, you know. Yeah, or
1: play, play inappropriate play, Mm -hmm. um, or unsupervised play, Mm -hmm. then that statistic goes – way up. So, we're, t- we're already talking about a very, almost a large number of, of children. If we add that to it, we're talking about almost all of them to some degree have had have, have some experience. So, that's just with other children. Now, you add in that the average 11-year-old has seen 20 hours of pornography, right? So, this is all pre-puberty. This is all before the arousal templates even formed, before they're even ready to know who they like and who they don't like or what they like and what they don't like. And then you add in uh, nocturnal emissions, and you add in you know their own self pleasure. So when you say, can you masturbate and not think about things from the past? Well, certainly, if you're one of the people who didn't experience any of these things that we just talked about.
0: Right, right.
1: So is there? Do I in the book I try to explain that that masturbation in and of itself, um, we have to understand the difference between eroticism and sexual development. So a child who's five or six has no eroticism, in my opinion, uh-huh. because they don't have the biological markers to think, oh, there's a boy, I want to do this to them. There's a girl, I want to do this to them.
0: Right, although their penises get hard as infants, not hard, but get when they get stimulated, oh. moms cleaning yeah, them arrest. up, they get erect.
1: Yes, my, my son. I mean, my five and a half year old just. I mean, he's constantly coming out with his, you know, pulling his penis through his underwear hole and laughing and joking, and I'm like, Dude, come on. And we're. Just, I'm like, I read a book on this. You can't be showing everybody your penis. But it's a common, normal, you know, thing for them to do. We don't need to freak out about it either. Or no. Make it all weird. You know, it's it's. We can laugh and move on and 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 help them to understand their bodies and redirect them and all this kind of thing. That's that's a totally separate conversation than what we're having. So I think if we, if we realize that we project onto our children eroticism when we talk about body parts or we talk about sexuality, and what, what we're talking about is not eroticism. We're talking about children who are five or six, rubbing on their self, exploring their body, touching themselves, and it feeling good is not the same thing as a 22-year-old thinking back on a child touching them at 10 or thinking back on a girlfriend at 13 or thinking back on sexual abuse, or thinking back on pornography. I don't see how ever doing that is healthy for a person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I don't, think, I don't think the science shows it. I don't think the addiction model shows it. I don't think the trauma response shows that that's a healthy pattern. Mm-hmm. It's understandable.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You shouldn't shame anybody for doing that. You should, you should show, especially therapists and friends, like, okay, that makes sense. You don't need to feel bad about it, but let's maybe try to find some other skills and some other resources so you don't keep re-triggering and relighting up that neural pathway. Mm-hmm. But if it's a person who's saying, um, I'm, I'm not lusting, I'm just, I, I, I have a need, I have an emotion, and my body's responding, and I want to take care of that, um, I, the questions I have is, can I do it without lusting? Can I do it without random thoughts and images of past things popping into my mind? Do I masturbate without sexual or erotic images? Can I do it and not allow it to become a coping skill or an addiction? Is it good for me, and do I feel ashamed or disgusted when I do it? So those are kind of the general questions that I, I want people to ask themselves around, excuse me, masturbation. And if all the answers to all of those are honestly no, then maybe it's a healthy thing for you to do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, maybe it's just a normal developmental thing. Yeah, it doesn't
0: you. put you at risk. Yes. But,
1: mm-hmm. but the population my my stance is the population of people who can do that is very, very low.
0: Yeah, that's what I think too. And and, and you can't even watch a video or television without it being overly sexualized so that if you're a normal person, you're gonna go to those kinds of images because there is a link to that arousal template. And Wanting to touch yourself. I mean, wanting to touch yourself is normal. It feels good. But if there's a link, where is that going to go? A
1: hundred percent.
0: Yeah. So now I got a couple other questions for you because obviously um, social devices and, and kids, you know, smart devices, mm-hmm. social media. I know you, you aren't going to give us – tell me when you think kids should uh, have their own smartphone.
1: So I'd say smartphone, what parents need to realize is that a, a Kindle Fire or a tablet of any sort is a smartphone. Mm-hmm. Children are not getting in trouble by calling other people. Mm-hmm. Right? And so that's, uh, if you give your kid an iPad, you're giving them a smartphone.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? The, the The problem with a smartphone isn't the calling. The problem with the smartphone is the apps and the social media. So it's, it's, It's gaming apps. It's things where there are streamers, where there are other adults and other human beings who are able to stream video content to your child without your supervision. It's also uh, any app that's able to send your, your child ads or send your child links. Any of those things, if your child hasn't been trained and equipped to protect themselves or to communicate with you, are extremely dangerous. So that's the first thing for people to understand, because people will say to me, well, my kid doesn't have a phone, and I'll say, well, they have an iPad, and they're like, yeah, they've been playing with that since they were four. It's like, well, that's the problem, right? It's not, the problem isn't necessarily the phone. The problem is the access to things that they shouldn't have access to. Um, And then the other is social media is the major problem. So when I say, when when you ask, when people ask me, when should a kid have a smart device, it's, well, it depends on how locked down that smart device is. The more concerning thing are those social media apps that can get them into lots of trouble, TikTok, Snapchat, um, Facebook, uh, Instagram. Um, one of the problems with that is, you know, you, most parents wouldn't send their child to a rated R movie. Right. They would see that rated R restricted movie and they'd say, oh, there's violence, there's nudity, sexual content and language. So I'm not going to allow my 12 year old to go to that movie. Mm-hmm. But every social media device has hardcore pornography, has all kinds of things on it that are should be rated triple X. And yet almost 90% of parents allow their children to have those things without a filter. And so first that awareness, second when. I think, and in the book, my favorite analogy, and I just I just got to say God dropped this on me because people have been asking me for years, and I, I think we have to look at it like a driver's license. Uh,
0: let me just tell our listening audience that not only is he a certified sex addiction therapist and a counselor, he's also an ordained minister, so when he says, I think God dropped, go ahead.
1: <laughs> no, yeah. So uh, for me, like, I, I, I was in a conversation, and I and I feel like uh, just the idea of driving can and, and just thinking back on, okay, well, these are teenagers, and a phone is so dangerous that it literally, you know, since 2010, since social media came out and the phones come out, there's been a 176% increase in child suicide and a 200% increase in self-harm in this age group from 10 to 14. And so you have to look at it and go, okay. So that many more kids are dying or harming themselves. Same thing with car wrecks. Um, and if not, more kids are dying from suicide than car wrecks. And so let's look at the car. What do we do in order to let a child, a 16-year-old, drive? Well, we let them drive around in a parking lot at 12. Mm-hmm. As You know, we, we're right there with them. We, we sit in our lap. We, we supervise them. And then at 13 or 14, they get a learner's permit. And they have to ride with someone who is responsible, who already has a driver's license, who already is equipped, and who already went through training to be able to stay safe on the road. And then at 15 or 16, they take driver's ed, and they meet with people, and they discuss the dangers of the road, and they learn education, and they practice. And then they get a driver's license to where they're able to drive without supervision, and they still have a curfew. And then at 17, they they get their curfews lifted, and they're able to do whatever they want to. I believe that the smartphone and that social media should be the same way. I believe that we should start with our 12 and 13 year olds learning to use it with our supervision, guiding them, teaching them, equipping them. And then as they show us maturity and as they make mistakes and we teach them and we work with them, we build healthy neural pathways and healthy responses to social media and devices, that they get privileges as they show us the level of maturity and trust, that they're going to come to us with questions, that they're going to make smart decisions. And then at 16 or 17 they get they get freedom to make their own choices knowing that when they make mistakes they're going to come back to mom and dad or when someone sends them something inappropriate or when they're exposed to something that they will come to us and have a conversation and we'll be able to teach them even more to where by 18 when they're adult when they're on their own we can trust that they can function in in society with those things Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so i i think our biggest problem you know, people think maybe that I'm anti-technology or anti-social media. What I am anti is giving a kid a device that they don't know how to use and allowing them to be damaged by it. When I do talks at schools, um, again, I've probably spoken to five, 6,000 children. I'll ask them, I'll say, raise your hand if you have a phone or a smart device. They'll all raise their hand. I say, keep your hand up if you have TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram. of them will have their hand up, Dr. Carroll. And I'll say, okay, keep your hand up if your parent taught you how to use this device. I've never had more than three people have their hand up after asking that question.
0: Wow. That is amazing.
1: Imagine if we did that with a car. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Imagine if we did that with all kinds of other things in our society that 98% of these children had not been educated or taught. They They would be dead. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the depression and the anxiety and the suicide rate um, just skyrocket in this population of children. And we're all asking why, and I think this is part of the answer.
0: Got it. Okay. Well, you have given us such good information as well as a lot of stats. And I'm going to have to listen to this show again just to get those stats because stats are important. Research is important. And, you know, like you said, a lot of your work is based on research. And what I love is that it's not just about how to empower parents or how to empower your kids, but it also, it talks about the trauma that kids and adults have been through in their lives. Because there is no doubt, and when I worked in sexual abuse, the kids that were at the greatest risk were kids that had parents that had been sexually abused because there was so much shame yes. that the parents couldn't talk about their own lives or the protection of their kids. And you would think it would have been exactly the opposite. But indeed, that trauma follows you everywhere and makes it really difficult to have a healthy conversations. So I want to remind everybody that you have got to get his book, and your book's Building Better bridges and then finish that out. Building Better bridges. how?
1: A guidebook to having difficult conversations that can save our children. And it's on Amazon and Barnes & Noble.
0: So pre-order.
1: It'll be out November 6th. And then um, I have a podcast myself called Asking Why with Clint Davis, if they want to check that out on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts, and they can hear information about me and what we do and these conversations. And... um, yeah, with the I just want to give this this plug too. With the book, there will be a Patreon page that comes out with video content on examples of how to talk to your children. There will be a body safety checklist that you can download to give to your babysitters or your anybody's keeping your child. There will be a guide to healthy sexuality conversations, a phone and device rules list, and then lastly. Um, there'll be a house rules list for where and when to keep your device and how to how to how to keep it safe within the home. So those will all be downloadable for free for people who sign up for the Patreon page. One of the things I wanted to make it was just real turnkey for people. So when they read the book, um, they won't leave going, well now what do I do? They're gonna get all of that. At the end of each chapter, there are four or five questions for you to process the chapter before to make sure you feel safe, you feel comfortable, you know where you're coming from because I the feedback so far has been people without kids who have read it have said, oh, my gosh, this is so healing for my inner child, and now I understand so much of why I'm struggling or why I'm afraid, and I'm going to go to therapy and get help with that. Or parents who have read it and said the same thing and then said, oh, this has broken down that barrier to help me talk to my child in a safe way so I can keep them safe. So it's been, it's been incredible feedback and, and support, and I'm super excited about um, people, more people getting it in their hands. So thank you for the opportunity to be on here.
0: Well, absolutely, and I'll make sure to talk about it when it comes out. And, again, they can pre-order it right now, get it hot off the press, or um, it comes out, you said November? 6th. 6th. Okay. Okay, so that Monday it'll come out. First yep. Monday in November. Um, Clint, thank you for all that you do. You know, I got into this field because I was getting calls from superintendents that were very much um, reflective of out of control sex, they'd say, you know, we got a group of kids on the bus and they are having oral sex. And I don't mm-hmm. know what to do about this. As if that's not bad enough, the supervisors or superintendents would share with me, they're videotaping it. So we got mm-hmm. all these videos going around and this is not reflective of our school. This is not how I want the school's reputation to be, and I'm worried about these kids, and I'm worried about the kids that are videotaping. What do we do, Carol? I I, I happened to work in the schools, and I was a mental health therapist, and I said, I don't know, but I will look up sexually compulsive behavior in kids, and I'll see if I can't get some training, and that's how I became a CFAC. Wow. Yeah, so I am so appreciative of your work because we don't have enough of it. And everybody go to and look at his TED Talk. And, again, tell us how they can get there. Uh,
1: if They'll just go to YouTube and type in Clint Davis TED Talk. Uh, it'll come up. So it'll be, the, you know, one of the first things.
0: All right, Clint Davis. Thank you so much, and let's keep keep this conversation going, okay?
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Carroll. It's always a pleasure to see you. Thank you for all your hard work. I know you've paved the way for a lot of this, so I
0: really, really appreciate it. Well, you know one thing, Clint? I am not a doctor, <laughs> I'm not no, a yeah. doctor. I'm just Carol. Carol the coach. right. So That's thank right. you so much. And, yeah, we will talk further, and I appreciate your comments, too. Book writing is a full-time job. Is it not, Clint? <laughs> it was a lot. It was a lot. It sure was. All right. You take care of yourself.
1: Yes, ma'am. Thank
0: you. All right. Bye-bye. As you well know, um, it is our mission here at Sex Help with Carol the Coach to keep you appraised of what we need to do to help generations to come. And uh, I just hope you enjoyed him. He's amazing. I'm going to go look at that TED Talk right now. I'll see you next week. What a week I have this week. I am training more people, more professionals on IRCAM, the Early Recovery Couples Empathy Model. And all in the hopes of helping couples heal. When we help couples heal, we help families heal. And we stop some of, some of that generational stuff. You all take care. And as I say at the end of every show, there'll only be one of you at all times. Fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. Make it a good week. And I'll catch you in October.